This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the Big, Big Dinosaur, Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we'll be talking about Therizinosaurus, a quick review of the Jurassic World Blu-ray, and some dinosaur news. But first, just another quick thanks to all our supporters on Patreon. We're growing in number, and we really appreciate that. If you want to see our video, check us out, support us, then take a look at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash inodino, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So, as you probably expected, and we might have mentioned before on the podcast, we pre-ordered the Blu-ray of Jurassic World because we wanted to be able to review it as quickly as possible and wanted to watch it again. So I want to go over a few of the special features that are on it that make it possibly worth buying. I guess you can decide. The biggest segment, and probably the most interesting overall, is a segment in the extras called Welcome to Jurassic World. And it's basically Colin Trevorrow and Steven Spielberg talking about the making of the movies. And in it, Steven Spielberg says that he found out from Michael Crichton before Jurassic Park was even finished being written as a book about the book and immediately wanted to make it into a movie and started bugging Michael Crichton for details about the book. But Michael Crichton kept insisting that all his books are secret until they're published. But obviously, when it was finished, Steven Spielberg read a few other books and made Jurassic Park. So then Steven Spielberg was also involved in the writing process of a couple of the other movies, and he goes into a little detail about that in that segment. And he had some input in Jurassic World specifically, as well as looking at the storyboards before the movie was made, and got really excited about what Colin Trevorrow had come up with. So Colin said that his goal was to make a world that was realistic enough that children would say, you have to take me there rather than making it look really futuristic. So I think they really achieved that with the making of the movie. Yeah, I would go there. And re-watching it in the beginning, there's the petting zoo scene, and it made me think like, oh man, I wish I could see that. <laughs> <laughs> they shot it 50-50 between Hawaii and Louisiana, and they had six sound stages in Louisiana. Most of the stuff in Hawaii was outdoor stuff. And they show fun things like the petting zoo that I just mentioned, where they had actors in big gray suits crawling around and then kids riding on their backs. And then later on, they would CGI the people crawling around into dinosaurs. Knowing that makes me view that scene 
a whole different way. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty fun to watch again and then know that the little baby Triceratops is actually just a grown man crawling around with a saddle on his back. They also show some of the specific locations in Hawaii where they shot, like the Kualoa Ranch, where they shot some of the earlier movies as well on Oahu. And in Louisiana, they actually took over and abandoned Six Flags, which had been under six feet of water during Hurricane Katrina. And they didn't use any of the rides, but what they did was they took the enormous parking lot that theme parks tend to have, and that's where they built the whole Jurassic World Visitor Center and little outdoor area where there's the big pterosaur battle and the T-Rex, Indominus Rex battle. And it also has kind of the main street or the downtown Disney or whatever you want to call it type area. And they point out that there's a Margaritaville. And in the behind the scenes, Jimmy Buffett is actually there behind the bar. And then there's a restaurant called Winston's, which is a shout out to Sam Winston, who did the special makeup effects and the animatronics for the first three Jurassic Park movies. And was actually working on Jurassic Park 4 until that was put on hold in 2005. But unfortunately, he passed away before Jurassic World was made. One of my favorite lines actually from that segment was the guard from the Indominus Rex enclosure right before they shot the scene where he got eaten. He said, well, if you look like me, you're not going to make it to the end of the movie. (laughs) And then they show him getting yanked up in the air on one of these really cool lines. And they show a lot of the other stunts that go on in the movie. Some of them the actors did, other ones that are body doubles, and that's always fun to watch. We also found Jack Horner. Yeah, he's actually up in a pretty large shot. There are people like high-fiving him and slapping him on the back. It's the first scene with the raptors after Chris Pratt or Owen Grady has successfully... Gotten them to follow some commands. Yes, and he is part of the group that is high-fiving and celebrating and hugging. Yep. Another segment that's pretty cool is called Dinosaurs Roam Once Again, and it shows some more of the stunts, and it shows how they added dinosaurs later on using CGI, and it shows some of the behind the scenes at Industrial Light and Magic in San Francisco. And my favorite part is actually they show all the reference actors and actresses pretending to be dinosaurs, and then the dinosaurs consultant Phil Tippett instructing the velociraptor actors to act more bird-like. And then they show those velociraptor actors in motion capture suits. And I think we mentioned before the movie came out that they used some motion capture, which was kind of weird because they ended up turning it into velociraptors. Usually motion capture is just capturing that thing. So if you're capturing people, you turn it into people on the screen. But turning people into velociraptors through motion capture added some realism and character to them, and it's fun to watch the behind the scenes of that, too. Then there's a quick segment called Chris and Colin Take on the World, where Colin Trevorrow and Chris Pratt discuss the original time when Chris Pratt said that he would end up on Jurassic Park 4 back in 2009 in this kind of weird behind-the-scenes shot from the set of Parks and Recreation And he's really just joking and pretending like, oh, here's Steven Spielberg and I have to turn it down because I'm doing so much other stuff or whatever. But he was totally just messing around. And then six years later, he's actually in the movie. (laughs) So it's kind of funny. And it also has a discussion with Colin Trevorrow and Chris Pratt where they talk about their favorite parts from the first few movies, which are mostly the scary parts from the first two movies. And there's within the other segments, there's a lot of other little tidbits and things. But I thought the funniest one was in the Pteranodon attack scene, 
Colin Trevorrow came up and told Chris Pratt, but not Bryce Howard, that they should kiss during the scene. So, and that's actually the shot that made it into the movie. It was the first take where Bryce Howard didn't know it was coming. So Chris Pratt, when he grabbed her and kissed her, she was totally surprised and it kind of came across that way. I thought that was pretty funny. Other than that, the deleted scenes are pretty boring. There's nothing exciting. I mean, it's pretty obvious in this case why they were deleted. There's not really anything worth watching. And there isn't any audio commentary to go over the full feature, which is something I always like in movies. I don't know why more movies don't do it. It seemed to be really popular for a while, and I guess it's kind of fallen out of favor. As far as I can tell, the only film in the Jurassic Park series that has any commentary is Jurassic Park 3. So you can always watch that one if you're looking for a bunch of commentary. (laughs) And just a quick shout out to the people on Twitter who were tweeting to us pictures and messages about how excited you were when you got your collector's edition of Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. It's really awesome that you shared it with us. We appreciate that. Yeah, we just got the regular limited edition packaging, which is this weird tin that kind of sits on top of a cardboard semicircle. So if it's not in a bookshelf, it'll probably just fall over right away. But it doesn't come with the big dinosaur models like the collector's edition does. But overall, I mean, the Blu-ray is obviously really good quality. And some of those behind-the-scenes things are definitely worth watching. So I would say it's worth picking up. We've got it for 20 bucks. I think that's a reasonable price to pay. It comes with like Blu-ray, a DVD, a digital copy, which I haven't tried, but apparently you can watch through the Apple store, iTunes, whatever it's called. And yeah, really good movie. I'm sure you like it if you're listening to this, so you should probably pick it up. I'm sure we'll have lots more to say about Jurassic World in the future, but for now that wraps it up. In dinosaur news, on to the next big dinosaur movie. Pixar said that the good dinosaur will have twice as many special effects as any previously released Pixar film. A lot of the backgrounds look like realistic photos, and this is because the animation team spent a lot of time in Wyoming, Oregon, and southern Montana to get a good feel of the landscapes that they wanted to create. And they used a GoPro camera to film their boat ride on a rapid river and a horse ride, and among other things. And they also downloaded data from the U.S. Geological Survey and images from Google Earth as a foundation to build their landscapes. Then they painted it over them to make them look unique. And they made a new cloud library, not something in the cloud, but actually clouds, creating 100% volumetric clouds. This is because the clouds appear in most scenes and have been described as, quote, almost like a villain in the movie. One of the scenes with the most special effects is when Arlo swept away in a river, and apparently those effects take up more storage space than all of the movie Cars 2, and it involves 125 shots of the water, which is way more water than is shown in any other Pixar movie. Slash Film has a number of high-res images that Pixar released, which are incredibly detailed. If you want to take a look, we'll be posting it on our blog. But it's down to the dinosaur skin and the boy spots hair. Pixar, interestingly, also made their dinosaurs look a little bit different from what scientists think dinosaurs looked like, and this is because their take is that in the movie, the asteroid never hit Earth, dinosaurs never went extinct, and instead they continued to evolve. Also, some of the dinosaurs will be sporting feathers, but not all of them. And just last thing about the good dinosaur, Pixar is known to insert Easter eggs for their movies and all their films. And Cinema Blend pointed out the Easter egg 
for The Good Dinosaur in Inside Out, which shows one of Riley's memories where she and her family are taking a picture on their road trip next to a statue of a Triceratops. And it looks a lot like the Triceratops in The Good Dinosaur trailer. And supposedly there's also other good dinosaur Easter eggs in Toy Story and Monsters University. If you have any examples, please let us know. Next, a new fossil in Minnesota gives locals hope that dinosaurs did live in the area, or at least that they'll be able to find more dinosaurs in the area. Researchers from Hill Annex Mine accidentally found a small one and three quarter inch claw bone, about 90 million years old, from a theropod. And according to paleontologist Christy Curry Rogers, scientists know that dinosaurs lived in Minnesota, but the type of sediment, because of glaciers, makes it hard to preserve fossils. So it's unclear what kind or how many dinosaurs lived in prehistoric Minnesota. Two other dinosaurs have been found in Minnesota, a piece of vertebrae and a serrated tooth. But this new find makes it seem as though there may be more dinosaur bones to potentially find. The claw fossil was found in the Hill Annex Mine, which used to be used to mine iron ore for steel until 1978. Now it's a state park, and more than 1,300 fossils from the Cretaceous era have been found there. Not dinosaurs, but shark teeth, clams, ammonites. Visitors to the park are allowed to take home any fossils, scales, or teeth that they find there, because even though it's a state park, it sits on county land. However, the park may not be there for much longer because water levels keep rising. The estimates that by 2018, much of the Cretaceous strata will be underwater, and there may be plans to start running the mine again. But in the meantime, paleontologists will be studying the claw fossil and publishing their research next year. The Utah Fieldhouse of Natural History State Park Museum, a museum that opened in 1948 and is now a state park, allows people to help in their dig program and go along with paleontologists for one week at a time for $400 per person. Any fossils that they find will be put in the museum's collection, and the museum specializes in the Jurassic era because it has access to so many fossils due to them being preserved by floodplains. So, opposite of Minnesota. (laughs) Next, this one's kind of a weird one. Some people are claiming that there are dinosaur fossils on Mars. This is based on a recent photo taken by NASA's Mars Curiosity rover. And it shows a rock formation that could possibly look like, quote, a prehistoric monster because it has a large skull and a large eye socket. At least one person has suggested it's a type of Komodo dragon because they can live in harsh areas and that the skeleton's only a few hundred years old. But NASA has said that these kinds of, quote unquote, discoveries happen all the time and it's just because the rocks eroded in a strange way and people are seeing optical illusions. It's this effect called periidolia, where the brain tricks the eyes to see familiar things in textured surfaces. Yeah, and I think it's just one of those examples of people looking for something and then using motivated reasoning to say like, oh yeah, there's a dinosaur fossil on Mars because like I've always been saying, there are aliens and so on and so forth where you start with your conclusion and you work back to, look, there's a picture of it. And it makes me wonder, too, there's always that problem when you're looking at weird pictures where you totally lose sense of scale. So who even knows how big this thing is? It might only be a couple inches wide or maybe it's huge. But in a picture, it just looks whatever size you already think it is. So there's an attraction in Japan called Dino Alive that's been in the news recently. And... It attempts to simulate what it would be like to actually encounter dinosaurs. So it's been around in Japan for a while and it still travels around, but it doesn't look like it's, there are any plans to leave the country anytime soon. There are quite a few YouTube videos that show what their show is like, and they have several dinosaurs in their collection. 
I should put dinosaurs in air quotes because they're all people inside half animatronic, half puppet style dinosaurs. But their legs are fully enclosed, so they're a little bit more realistic than some of the other ones we've seen. The oldest dinosaur that they have is an Allosaurus from 2006, which has the ability to bite and attack. And it can also like swing its tail around and kind of run a little bit, depending on how fast the person inside is. And it looks pretty realistic. There's a video on YouTube of it biting onto a audience member and kind of putting that person's whole camera and head inside the mouth of this thing. And it just kind of like randomly goes up and grabs them and freaks them out. And then in some of the sketches, it'll interact with the different quote unquote trainers around it, knocking them over or chasing them around or various things. In 2010, they added a Tyrannosaurus Rex to the lineup, and their T-Rex is 8 meters or 26 feet long, and that's about 2 meters or 6 feet longer than the Allosaurus was, and they had to use carbon fiber to support its massive size and prevent it from squishing the guy who's operating the animatronics and moving around inside the dinosaur. Also in 2010, they added a Stegosaurus to their group, which is 7 meters or 23 feet long, and I'm not sure exactly how that one's controlled. I couldn't find any good details about it. But from looking at it, I'm guessing it's like one of those horse costumes where there are two people in it walking at the same time because you can see the four legs and all of the other ones are moved around just by a person inside it. So that would be kind of funny. They said they made the Stegosaurus because the other ones were very scary and they wanted something a little less imposing to interact with children. And the dinosaurs are pretty intense and since they bite onto random audience members and swing their tail at you and stuff, it looks pretty intense, especially for little kids. In 2014, they released a new version of the Allosaurus and it has more realistic motion and they consider it to be their flagship dinosaur. And it's the one that they were using for this publicity stunt that they just did last week where they had the Allosaurus run through a crowd and pretend to escape from some trainers and then chase other people around in the subway. There's one funny article that I ran into that compared the Dino Alive group to the quote-unquote raptor encounter that's at Universal's Island of Adventure in Orlando, Florida in the U.S., where what you can do is stand by an enclosure that resembles the T-Rex enclosure from the Jurassic Park movie. And there's the one segment missing, just like there is once the car gets pushed through it or the T-Rex escapes. And the raptor sticks its head out, and you can kind of take a picture with it. But that's pretty much the whole interaction that you can have at that, I guess, ride? I don't know what you call those things at Universal Studios. It can open... A set? Yeah, I guess it's a set. It can open its mouth and kind of look around and make a couple sounds that are the same as the Velociraptor from the movie. They opened that set in May 2015, but it doesn't look nearly as exciting as the movie is or as the Dino Alive group in Japan. I'm seeing more and more of these awesome animatronics from Japan after that Fukui Raptor and the Fukui Station. Now this Dino Alive group. Gonna have to go to Japan soon. <laughs> and in our... Next and last two news items for this episode, they're about two awesome people that we've interviewed on our podcast. The first is Taylor McCoy, creator of the website Everything Dinosaurs, and we interviewed him in the episode Jura Tyrant, is now selling t-shirts for his site. The shirts have the Everything Dinosaurs logo, and they come in black, pink, or olive. Shirts cost $12.99 on Teespring, and there's only 14 more needed to go to print and ship, and we'll post a link on our blog if you're interested. 
Also, Josh Cotton, a paleo artist we interviewed in our episode, Ultrasaurus, had his work recently featured in USA Today. So congrats, Josh. The story was about how scientists have found a large number of interesting fossils at a site in Utah. Some were, quote, like tiny crocodiles with a chihuahua's legs, end quote, and others were from a flying pterosaur with fangs that had a big head and short wings, so it probably moved in zigzags. According to Dan Scher from Dinosaur National Monument, pretty much everything they've found so far is of animals that were previously unknown. They're of animals that lived just before the mass extinction that allowed dinosaurs to thrive, and they are in an area where late Triassic fossils are rare. The area is known as the Sand Pit because it was an ancient desert, and the team searching the area didn't have much hope of finding any fossils. But in 2008, after two years of searching, they found this area in northern Utah with a ton of bones. Over 11,000 fossils in an area the size of a big living room, according to Brooks Britt from Brigham Young University. There's big and small animals, including drapanosaurs, which are rare reptiles with hands that look like a moles and wasn't thought to have lived in a desert. And there's both small and large dinosaurs, among many, many other animals. The team who found all the bones has named the site Saint and Sinner's Quarry. And one explanation for this name is that, for example, the pterosaur with fangs looks like a sinner who would kill you, but, quote, has the wings of an angel. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now on to the dinosaur of the day, Therizinosaurus, 
which was requested from Bob via Facebook. So thanks, Bob. The name Therizinosaurus means scythe lizard and comes from the Greek word therizo that means to reap or to cut off. It was a theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous. There's only one species, Therizinosaurus shalaniformis. Fossils have been found in Mongolia, and it was at first thought to be turtle-like. The species name means turtle-formed, but only a few bones have been found, including large hand claws. The find was from a joint Soviet-Mongolian fossil expedition in 1948 in Mongolia. Russian paleontologist Evgeny Malev named it in 1954, and he thought it was a turtle-like reptile that used its claws to get to seaweed, since the holotype only has claws. He thought Therizinosaurus used its forelimbs for swimming, and then the claws would be to cut aquatic vegetation, like seaweed. Then more fossils were found, including more claws and parts of forelimbs, which Rinchen Barsbold described in 1976. And then in 1982, Altengero Pearl described another specimen which had hind limbs. In 1970, Anatoly Konstantinovich Rostovinsky said Therizinosaurus was a dinosaur and not actually a turtle. It was controversial, though, about what kind of dinosaur Therizinosaurus was. Some thought it was a carnosaur. Others thought that its killing claw was really similar to a Deinonychosaur. Eventually, it was classified as some type of theropod. And in northern China, there were some related species found that helped paleontologists figure out more about Therizinosaurus. And Therizinosaurus was at first identified as a Segnosaurid when Segnosaurus and Ehrlichosaurus were found, and they were found in Asia. Segnosaurids are herbivorous theropods with long arms, long necks, and big, wide bellies. The Segnosaur group name eventually changed to Therizinosaur, and I'll get to a little bit more on that later. In fossils found in the 80s and 90s, there was Alxosaurus and Bapiosaurus, and they were determined to be in the same group as Therizinosaurus, which gave paleontologists the idea that Therizinosaurus probably had a bird-like pelvis, and they got more details about the feet and skulls. And eventually they concluded that Therizinosaurus and other dinosaurs in its group were more advanced herbivorous manoraptorin theropods. So again, Therizinosaurids are theropods, but they're herbivores, unlike most other theropods, which are carnivores. They're also kind of unusual theropods, because theropods usually only use three toes when they're standing and walking, but Therizinosaurs use four toes. Based on related Therizinosaurids, scientists have kind of pieced together what Therizinosaurus looks like. So it probably had a small skull, a long neck, and a wide body. It was probably bipedal. It probably had long forelimbs. It's estimated 8 feet or 2.5 meters, or even up to 11.5 feet or 3.5 meters long. Gregory S. Paul in 2010 estimated that the largest Therizinosaurus would have been 33 feet or 10 meters long and weighed 5 tons. This is based on the largest known Therizinosaurus and Manoraptorans. Therizinosaurus is closely related to Velociraptor based on the shape of its wrist and hip bones, but it also looks a lot like the Ornithomimid Dinochirus. This is because of its claws. Therizinosaurus had large claws, larger than most Therizinosaurus. They're probably about 3.3 feet or 1 meter long, and they have actually the longest claws of any known animal. These claws were straight, but tapered into a point gradually, and the claws may have been used for display to show reproductive maturity, or males may have fought each other with their claws, like how Ceratopsians battle with their horns. Claws may have also been a deterrent for predator Tarbosaurus batar, which was one of the predators that lived around it, and this would have helped Therizinosaurus look fearsome. 
Just a quick note, other dinosaurs that lived around Therizinosaurus included Avamimus and Alioramus, which was a tyrannosaur. But Therizinosaurus possibly also used its large claws to pull down tree branches. So if it pulled down vegetation, then it may have been a picky eater, kind of figuring out what it wanted from the tall trees. It was probably an herbivore. This is based on other Therizinosaurus, although it's unclear what exactly it ate. That's because no skull has been found. But most of its relatives had small leaf-shaped teeth and were herbivores. Some scientists think Therizinosaurus ate insects and may have used their claws to rip into termite nests. But some Therizinosaurus may have been omnivores. Some Therizinosaurus had feathers, such as Bapiosaurus from China. But it's unclear if Therizinosaurus had feathers, because it was much larger than Bapiosaurus. In 2013, a nest of Therizinosaur eggs were found, 17 clutches in the Gobi Desert, which showed that maybe Therizinosaurs were somewhat social. The eggs that were found had no embryos, which may mean they all hatched and then the babies left with their parents. The adults of the eggs were estimated to weigh 1,100 pounds or 500 kilograms. You can see a life-size Therizinosaurus statue in Poland, along with Allosaurus, Diplodocus, and Iguanodon, and more, in Jura Park. You can also see Therizinosaurus and Tarbosaurus battling in Chased by Dinosaurs, a documentary from 2002. And you can see Therizinosaurus in BBC's Walking with Dinosaurs Inside Their World. Therizinosaurus will be in a future update of Ark Survival Evolved, which is a game we've talked about on this show. It will be large and slow, but if you tame it, players will be able to ride it and use Therizinosaurus for defense. Therizinosaurus also first inspired how Indominus Rex from Jurassic World looked. This is according to Jack Horner in an interview with Yahoo Movies, and this is due to its big, grasping arms. So, Therizinosaurus is part of the family Therizinosauridae, which means reaper lizards, and they're advanced theropods. They're herbivores and omnivores. They lived in the Cretaceous, and they've been found in Mongolia, China, and the U.S. Therizinosaurs had long necks, wide torsos, and they walked on four toes in a similar way to basal sauropodomorphs. They had unique hip bones that pointed backwards, and that made paleontologists originally think that they were like the bird-hipped ornithischians. They also have large claws on their hands. They could reach really far forward with their forelimbs, farther than other theropods, which made scientists think that they were mostly herbivores. They may have used their claws to grasp at branches, similar to a sloth. Yeah, I really like the comparison to a sloth. If you've ever been in a museum and seen a giant sloth, they're enormous and they have huge claws, actually, that they use for grabbing branches and things. So even though they have like these menacing claws and big hands, you know, they didn't attack anything. I don't, or maybe they used it for defense. I don't know, but they were definitely herbivores. So I think that's a good comparison. Yeah. And as I mentioned, Bapiosaurus is known to have had feathers because the skin impressions found with it show primitive down-like feathers, which is similar to the Compsognathid Sinosauroteryx. Some Therizinosaurs were relatively small, like Bapiosaurus, which was 7.3 feet or 2.2 meters long, but others were large, and Therizinosaurus was the largest. Because Therizinosaurus was such an incomplete find and it had a whole bunch of strange features, it had things in common with theropods, prosauropods, and ornithischians. Scientists at first grouped therizinosaurs as cygnosaurs. They also thought that they were semi-quadrupedal, that is, cygnosaurs, because prosauropods were semi-quadrupedal. But this is actually impossible because they have such bird-like wrists. 
In the mid-1990s, scientists found Alxosaurus, which was more like a typical theropod. And Alxosaurus and Therizinosaurus were part of the Cygnosaur group, which made more scientists accept that these dinosaurs were herbivorous theropods, descended from carnivorous theropods. Then more primitive dinosaurs in the same group were found, including Bapiosaurus, in 1999, and Falcarius in 2005, which was described as a missing link between carnivorous manoraptoran theropods and herbivorous therizinosaurs. And interestingly, therizinosaurs had skulls similar to sauropods and teeth and jaws that made them herbivores. The group Segnosauria was named originally as an infraorder of theropoda in 1980, but now they're considered a specialized group within Theropoda and a synonym of Therizinosauridae. This is because Therizinosaur was named first, so the group took the new name once scientists realized that Therizinosaurus was part of the same group as Cygnosaurs. So what happened was, in 1954, Malev named the superfamily Therizinosauroidea, but it only had Therizinosaurus in it at the time. And then scientists found that it was an advanced Cygnosaur and renamed the group partly because Therizinosauroidea was older, and partly because Cygnosauria was associated with the idea that they were related to prosauropods, which has been discredited. There's not much known about Therizinosaur behavior, but CT scans in 2012 of the Therizinosaur Ehrlichosaurus showed that it had a large brain, good balance, and a good sense of hearing and smell, which could have helped avoid predators or help them find food or even engage in social behavior. And our fun fact of the day is that noise-making equipment of most animals doesn't fossilize. And outside of dinosaurs like Parasaurolophus that appeared to use a resonant chamber, we really don't know what they sounded like. According to the Tate Geological Museum from Casper College in Wyoming, Tyrannosaurus rex might have hissed like a snake, chirped like a bird, or bellowed like an alligator during the mating season. Or it may have been completely silent like many modern reptiles. It sounds like the noise everyone associates with T-Rex from the Jurassic Park movies. It's that whale combined with lion and half a dozen other scary animals. Probably isn't so accurate. I like to think it was just totally silent. It'd be kind of scary. That might be scarier than if it roared. Yeah. And on that note, (laughs) that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Once again, if you want to support this podcast, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash inodino. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Good day.